This is season seven of Associated, and we're back with episode three of our mini-series on the influx of U.S. capital into the European tech landscape. If you have not yet heard the first two episodes, feel free to listen to those first and meander back. We'll wait. So, competition versus collaboration. Over the next two episodes, we will unpack both, starting with competition. Before we started these interviews, I, your host Danielle, saw competition as having a bit of a negative connotation. It may have prevented harmony and pushed funds to show their worst, but after discussing with founders and VCs alike, I realized that there is a substantial middle ground. Your enemy, so to speak, in one deal is your ally in the next, and more competition may actually lead a fund to sharpen the differentiation and polish their skills, making them the best version of themselves. And that, in our opinion, is what a growing startup ecosystem like that in Europe feeds on. So the first question is, in what ways are we competing? We got a few answers, including on brand recognition, marketing, learn top talent, optimize fund structure, style, and valuation. Let's start with valuation, which here is being broken down via price per share. Obviously, when I have seen deals done in the last year where our uh, original offer was outbid by more than 2x in terms of the, the price per share that we wanted to invest at. And as I say, we're not the lowest pricing VC firm out there. We're pretty ambitious on the upside. So to be outbid by 2x is really stark. And I think part of that has been driven by increased competition, especially through international capital coming to the market. Most of that, I would say 80% of those extra dollars coming into the market is a growth stage. It's series E, D, crossover funds to, to a lesser extent C. Uh, and at series A, US firms at least last year probably made up less than 30% of the total dollars deployed in Europe. That is James Wise, a partner at Balderton. Yes, so US firms made up 28% of total dollars deployed in Europe last year, and valuations are going up. Price per share is a metric that informs valuation as funds typically purchase a specific number of shares for a certain price per share. Okay, but even if we are now competing on valuation, Maybe that has more to do with the fact that companies were undervalued for a long time, more so than European funds now being price gouged. The difference is shocking, but maybe some of it is a market correction. Harry Briggs, a partner at Omer's here. Look, I think, I think in Europe, we had it maybe too easy for a while. The ecosystem had so few funds that whilst, yes, there were always competitive deals. And when I was at Bulletin, we had to battle with particularly index and Excel quite often. And sometimes we won and sometimes we didn't and wished we'd move faster or whatever. But, but nothing compared to the sort of ferocious competition in the, particularly the West Coast. If you're a West Coast investor, you're always up against 10 other funds. And so you're always trying to prove how you add value. And it was only a matter of time before we started to have similar levels of competition in Europe, but I think, frankly, American funds have just been more honed by that competition for longer. It was possible to be a successful investor in Europe by getting out there, showing up, but basically the money was enough. And I think more recently it's become necessary to, to demonstrate a lot more in the way of, in the way of value. So look, I think, I think European investors, I think it's probably a more collaborative ecosystem. It's probably, I, I think most of the people I know in European venture are incredibly lovely and smart people, but I think we've probably all had to adopt a bit more 
cutthroat, ruthless approaches in recent years because we're having to compete with more US funds and more of that kind of Silicon Valley uh, mentality. I always say this to founders as well. When a competitor enters the market, it, it's good for you to face the the best competition earlier in your journey, because if you don't, you get, you can get lazy, you can get complacent. And I, I learned incredible amounts from my colleagues at Balderton and, and have only respect for them as a fund. But I think it's also probably fair to say that there were times when I was there, when, when we probably weren't as uh, aggressive or as ambitious, as aspirational as I think Balderton are now. And, and I think that was a lot of that was because we maybe didn't need to be in the market we found ourselves in. From a founder's perspective, it was seen similarly. I feel like Silicon Valley is one of the few places in the world where if you're like an 18 year old with a crazy idea, you won't just be completely discounted. People will take you seriously. And that's a pretty amazing thing. Most places in the world, if you're an 18 year old with a crazy idea, people will just be like, what are you doing? Here is Dennis Kent, the co-founder and CEO of biotech company Prolific Machines, alluding to the fact that EU startups have historically been mispriced. Yeah, go back to school or something. But I think there's been enough like 18 year olds with crazy ideas that have ended up starting multi-billion dollar companies that now investors think twice before discounting the crazy 18 year olds. And I think that's an interesting like thing to think about with American and and European VCs, because in Europe, there haven't been that many 18 year olds that have started multi-billion dollar companies, whereas in the US there have. And so I think that has an impact on investor psychology, because if you're a American investor and you passed on this crazy 18 year old and that crazy 18 year old ended up creating a multi-billion dollar company. That will stay with you for the rest of your life. That you had the opportunity to invest in this company at like a two or $3 million valuation and you passed and you could have become, you know, wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. That's sort of, that's something that will stick in that investor's mind. So the next time they encounter another crazy 18 year old, they're far less likely to just automatically discount what they're saying. But in Europe, because there haven't been many crazy 18 year olds that have started multi-billion dollar companies. Every time a European VC has passed on an 18 year old, they've been right. And I think that changes how they then view the next crazy young person that they see. So I think that's one of the, that's an interesting hypothesis on why there are differences between European and American VCs. The other like prevailing hypothesis, of course, is that Americans were somehow selected for as being less risk averse because in the 1800s, getting on a boat and <laughs> traveling for six months to somewhere that nobody had ever been before and somewhere that you may never come back from was a pretty risky proposition. And so if all Americans or most Americans are descendants from those people, then it's, it's possible that, that you've selected for a group of people that are more willing to take risks and that might be why their venture capital industry is so successful relative to Europeans. So founders and funders alike believe that in part, some of the balloon in price is a market correction. 
And to Dennis's point, also a testament to the level of risk European VCs were willing to take at the time. And the cycle continued to repeat itself, with more risky industries such as the deep tech space going to the US and less risky tech staying in Europe. Now with more risk-tolerant investors coming in, in the last episode we heard that more founders and funders are moving back or moving to Europe because of geopolitical events and other things, valuations have started to raise overall. Valuations in certain segments have definitely increased. Competition for deals does affect valuation. As an as a investor, we are looking for power law-like returns. These are exponential returns on our capital. And so actually the difference between getting in at valuation A or valuation A plus 20% doesn't actually really affect your returns in that regard. And so VCs are naturally not as price sensitive as other financial assets. But having said that, you do have to be wary of valuations. This is James again, speaking also to the fact that valuations will also affect the number of companies funds get to invest in. And so it's just a small move at, at series A and B, but it is impacting the market. And we are seeing valuations creep up. If you look at the average size of a Series A now, in terms of dollar deployed over the last five years, I believe it's grown from about six to something like $15 million. So that is more than a 2x increase in, in about five years. And that's a really, you know, if you're a venture firm of, let's say you're a $300 million cap venture firm, that halves the number of Series A deals you can do within a portfolio and you lose some of that portfolio effect. So that has had a meaningful impact, but at the same time, the average button size has grown as well. So even within Balderson, our last fund that we raised for the early stage is a $600 million fund in 2013. Our Series A fund was a $300 and something million dollar fund. So, so we doubled our fund size with that regard as well. And then finally, I think there is a different deal cadence. In, in a world where your investors are probably more local to you. The repercussions of the valuation wars have not just affected deal cadence and fund makeup, but have also somewhat significantly changed the stage at which certain funds invest. Many are moving earlier. Many funds desire to invest in a double-digit quantity of a range of assets in order to obtain optimal portfolio effect. The fluctuations in valuation have led some fund managers to make compromises, i.e. they won't invest in the same number of deals that they envisioned, or they won't be investing at the valuation they hoped for, or, and we are seeing this play out, they will do earlier deals. Harry again. So look, I think the leading European funds have, have really upped their game and not just Balderton, Excel index, like your alma mater, Creandum, I think would be another great example of a fund that has always been good, but has probably sharpened its teeth and is now, you know, offering more in the way of support for founders, but also moving faster, investing earlier stage and building an ever stronger reputation. This is true, not just for local VCs, but also for US firms as well. In the last 18 months, Index launched a $200 million seed fund. Sequoia launched ARC, a six and a half week accelerator program to invest 1 million equity in 20 early stage companies. Catherine Hahn, formerly of A16Z, spun out her first fund that was $1.5 billion assets under management, a third of which will invest in early stage rounds in Web3. Lightspeed Venture Partners just announced a $500 million early stage crypto fund. From Judith's perspective, a partner at La Flamiglia, there is still a ways to go before we get data points on if pre-seed works at scale for U.S. funds investing in European tech companies. I've definitely seen U.S. funds be active across all stages of kind of European companies. I think if you look at the numbers, the majority of the U.S. presence is still focused on the growth stage. However, I think just personally and on a more qualitative basis, 
We've seen bigger U.S. funds do pre-seeds, do seeds, really be the first check writer into companies based in Germany, companies based in France. And I think country barriers, first and foremost, should not be the most important decision-making criteria here. I think it's still a decision-making criteria and it's still something to be considered because I do think, especially in the early stages, we always say it's roll up your sleeves, take people by the hand if they need that, if they want that quite messy affair. It's not a perfectly, you know, well-oiled growth engine. So I'm curious to see how that's going to play out and how the international funds who, you know, just by the definition of their operating model and of their, of their presence, that's always going to be from a gravitational center, going to be more focused on, on their origin, potentially, how that's going to play out and to what extent they can then really also put focused resources on the ground in Europe. Competition overvaluation is not much contested in our conversations, but what is, is why. Some believe that American funds are obtaining a valuation premium, i.e. they are successfully negotiating an increase in the company's valuation for substantial company equity. This is just because of who they are. I do think, though, that U.S. investors get a premium, frankly, for no real good reason other than they're American. For what it's worth, I think the same thing used to happen and probably still does happen in the U.S. with Valley investors. This is Brian Burke, a principal at Keen Venture Partners. Being a Silicon Valley investor in the U.S. was perceived as very different and much more like premium than being a VC in the rest of the U.S. I think for no reason other than label alone. Quite possibly, founders are sometimes willing to take the relative price hike due to network effects that they think partnering with a notable American fund can bring them. For context, when I lived in the Midwest in the U.S., the main reasons I saw teams taking money from the Valley was because of signaling and more cash, though obviously there are also exceptions. This was a trade-off, as sometimes it was at the cost of their own dilution. Some funds would come in, suggest that the companies raise more so they could own more of the company, and then if other funds wanted to join that the founding team liked, the lead or others would ask that the round dilution come out of the founder's percentage, not theirs. So a big valuation premium is not always to the benefit of the founder short term. But long term, the idea is that the company as a whole becomes more valuable and founders still hold a chunk of that. Zoe, a partner at Frontline Ventures, notes that though she has seen and worked with the U.S. quote gold standards of investors, described as those who have sensible questions, are transparent, open up their networks, and are communicative, she has also seen the opposite, who have made it to the cap table. So my experience on this is probably is probably quite broad brush, but I've seen I'd say two ends of the spectrum. So. One is lazier and almost the antithesis of value add by being very candid about being followers. Can I say the word sprayers? You understand what I mean when I say that, but being very clear that they say we're not offering up anything useful beyond capital, but we've got that and we are in the States and that's kind of it. But of course, particularly if you think about downturn, maybe capital is important and maybe someone who is just happy to sign a term sheet and do no diligence and rely on a lead investor is useful. But I guess to my mind, that's lazy and it, it can be difficult for those founders because a passive investor is probably fine, but a net negative investor can really, you know, screw up a company. Paul Murphy, a partner at Lightspeed Ventures, provides a counter perspective, saying in his experience, the novelty has diminished. Reason from traditional Silicon Valley funds looks very similar to what I see founders going through in Berlin and Stockholm and Barcelona or London today. I think also like just 
the novelty of U.S. funds, I think, has, I don't want to say it's gone away, but I think it's, people are looking at the U.S. funds and the Austin European funds and saying, okay, who's the best partner for me? Whereas I do think four years ago, any U.S. fund that showed up with substance and, and like interest always had a look up on the European funds. Maybe the actual yet less satisfying answer is it depends. Price is somewhat dependent on areas of focus in VC, and competition is either there or it's not. James here. So there are certain segments which are hotter than others. I, I think SaaS, certain areas of fintech, these are areas which we've always been investors in. We were very early uh, to invest in some of the defining financial technology that is out of Europe, I, I believe. Uh, and we, we had a strong portfolio and have a strong portfolio there. But now those segments are pretty well understood, in, uh, broadly speaking. And, and certainly we see many uh, VCs competing uh, with us for similar deals in those segments. But there are whole swathes of the technology market which are completely underfunded, and we don't see much competition at all. We will touch on underfunded areas of VC in a later episode, but want to continue on the competition thread for now. The competition we've been talking about so far mainly revolves around winning deals, but a large part of VC is also about finding companies to invest in. Funds are always in a race to find the best founder talent first. Paul here on what incumbents have over U.S. funds like Lightspeed. There are many funds that are, and they tend to be more seed focused, but that are really ingrained in the local talent pool. They know who all the top talent are, what they're up to, and they're able to talk to them before they ever leave their startup or this company to go to their next venture. So I think that there, there's no way with the fragmentation of the tech kind of and startup scene in Europe, there's no way that we're ever going to have that level of local knowledge in every tech hub or every tech city in Europe. So that's an advantage that we don't even aspire to match. I think what we can do though, is I think if it's a, first off, if it's a, a market that we are deep in or a geography that we're deep in or a sector that we're really familiar with, I think increasingly we'll get some of those calls that has happened. I've done two of those already. The Lightspeed does expand by hiring local partners in their geographies, which is their way of going toe to toe with local firms. They admit that local funds have a leg up when it comes to understanding and having a relationship with prospective new founders. Other funds have different strategies, including Sequoia who have a well-funded brand and networking strategy to catch up on local knowledge. This signals to the market that they now see North America and Europe as one common market, equally important areas of investment. They, they feel much more serious and they're investing a lot more heavily in, into Europe than many of the other peer funds to, to Sequoia, right? That is Hussein Kanji, a partner from Hoxton. He notes that though big names like Sequoia are making a significant time, money, and energy investment, they don't always get to control the brand narrative, another area of competition. Some of this backfires the the Sebastian Malaby article in the FT that came out on Sequoia effectively discovering Europe was, I think, I think that was, that kind of fired, right? Because it, it, it wasn't written by them, but it was obviously so much about them that it felt like product, like pay placement, like product placement inside of a, inside of an editorial, inside of an earth. And there wasn't an editorial. It was like a, it was like a, it was an echo, like a news piece, but it felt a little bit too paid and a little heavy handed. I, I thought, and, and I'm not tell death. They do a lot of courtship with the seed funds. They're very clear that they're here to stay. They probably are here a couple of years too late and they would be the first to say that they probably should have set up a few years prior. 
because they're catching the market post-inflection. Inflection probably happened a long time ago, but they're so far behind inflection, they actually do have to play catch-up. Francesca also mentioned this piece, but we promise we are not FT-sponsored. One other strategy we have seen is that of index, who you can argue went backward, starting in Europe and then heading to the U.S. Hussein tells the story. People forget that index in its 20 years ago was like effectively a family business that was just really scrappy. Like when I was at Axel, index was on Clifford Street, like in the Brown Brunswick basement. It was two people in London because the firm was really headquartered in Geneva. They were the scrappy underdogs. And if you look at what index has done from 2006, seven to today, it is clearly the dominant venture fund in, in Europe. It, it, I, would, I would rate it higher than, than Axel. And it, it, it's been here longer than Sequoia. So I would rate it higher than Sequoia, at least here. And to be fair, they've actually gone to the U.S. and done something that's very difficult for a venture fund to do from here and actually you know, become a top tier fund out in the U.S. market. And so when you look at that, you wouldn't have guessed in 2006 or 2007 that was going to be the dominant for in Europe. Like that, that was, they were the underdogs. That was the, the ones you probably would not bet on. They would have the long odds. And so I'm not so sure that it may be the American fund with all the resources that ends up becoming the dominant fund in Europe. It, it might be a scrappy underdog that actually ends up getting there. So a couple of decades ago, Excel was well-equipped and new to Europe. But the scrappy family office at Index prospered. Now, with so many more founder options, the funds that will be seen towards the top are still in question. There are distinctive areas of competition and specific strategies certain funds use to differentiate themselves amongst the many. Zoe summarizes well. In a way, starting a new fund is like starting a company. Everyone has to have their own style. I mean, on the practical side, it's almost like being a founder who's going to a new market, so... I mean, they've got to learn like where the best places to eat are and they've got to like get a visa and figure out which neighborhood they want to rent a house in and where, and like how they hire their first person and all of that good stuff, um, which events to go to, who to go meet. Um, but on the business side, you know, I think they've got to figure out what their message is to the local market. Like, are they friend? Are they foe? Do they care? Do they not care? Do they want to be uh, a kind of useful player? Do they want to meet the seeders upstream, downstream? Or are they just, don't worry about us, brand name, we are who we are. Uh, you know, do they, do they want to understand the cultural sensitivities, which even as somebody in like London, I understand that there are like 50 across everywhere I visit. Um, or, you know, and I think it's about how they decide they want to play it. Um, because, you know, going really insular, you, you know, once you've been here two or three years and no one's ever met you, like, it's quite hard to ch change that perception of you. Um, but no, I know, like, Creandum opened a new London office last week and just threw a party for everyone, uh, which is always welcome and was wonderful. Not suggesting everyone needs to do that, but you know what I mean? I think there's practical challenges and I think there's business challenges. And on the business side, you know, if you're not taking up white space and you genuinely are here to be competitive, that's great. But then what's your style with that? You know, is it to just kind of be brash about it or is it to still try and kind of get on side with the local managers? So we've gone through at least four tangible areas of competition, valuation, talent spotting, brand recognition and style. But we didn't let our guests get away that easily. We were also curious to understand in what areas that they refuse to compete. This is James. It's never going to be we are the largest fund because I think Venture doesn't quite scale. It's not just about having the most dollars under management. 
I think it's always going to be having a differentiated thesis. And I hope more VCs enter the market, but if you've got a thousand people thinking working in VC, you're still not going to have enough people to cover all of the opportunities. From Lightspeed's perspective. If a company comes to me and says, Hey, I've got a term sheet. I want to decide by tomorrow and it's the first meeting, you know, very politely, but just say, good luck to you. Let's build the relationship. We can talk next time. I'm not going to chase that down in 24 hours because it's going back to the earlier point. Like it's a very long-term commitment that we're making. I want to know that I want to work with you and hang out with you for a decade because we may not get along. That hasn't really happened, but it could happen. We don't get along with someone. And also you want to make sure that when we jump into it, we're like really excited about it and we fully believe what the founder believes and it's just to develop that in a short period of time. So the short answer to your question is we, we do pass on quite a few things or at least delay them and just build the relationship. We try to have a, a zero FOMO approach to our investing, at least in Europe where possible. And importantly, having areas of competition does not mean there is no room for collaboration. Competition in the European landscape right now is demand-led. James again. Yeah, I think the first thing to say on this point is the pie is growing. There is increased competition. And I'll go into that in a second. But the fundamental point is this is a demand-led increase in venture capital, right? So it's not the same amount of dollars or more dollars rather chasing fewer opportunities. There are more opportunities than ever. And by opportunities, founder-led software businesses, which could scale to re-upend industries and create millions of dollars of value in the process. The number of incredible founders and really uh, impactful businesses being built now is higher than ever. You, you can measure this in terms of deal flow. You can measure it in terms of outcomes. There's lots of different ways of looking at it. The total opportunity for investing in those kind of companies has, and it continues to outpace the availability of capital. So what that means is actually at an aggregate level, we don't see as much competition as you might think, but because this increase in capital is following demand and the demand is still outstripping supply, I believe. Judith also notably points out that it is all about perspective. That's the beautiful thing about venture. You're competing with one fund in the morning, and then you're collaborating with the same fund on a company that you're already invested in or a company that you're sharing notes on or you're sharing thoughts on that same evening. So I really don't think we should think about it in terms of this delineation. I think we're right now in a world where we think way too much about delineations and like Europe versus the US. It's not Europe versus the US, it's Europe and the US. And it's not competitive versus collaborative. It's that the nature of VC is always both. And I think that's such a beautiful thing about this industry. Like name another industry where your competitor can also be your closest collaborator. So we have heard quite a bit this episode from the variety of broad strokes ways that VCs are competing on European tech deals, price per share leading into valuations, on branding and marketing pushes, on talent spotting, et cetera, to how certain funds win in these competitions hint, used to be that just being American was enough. Now it is more specific to fund structure, go-to-market strategy, and sometimes a good old-fashioned underdog mentality. We even discussed in what ways are they refusing to compete with one another. Every fund strategically makes decisions to, in their eyes, bring something new to the table for founding teams. This is a tried and true necessity in VC. Quite possibly though, local funds are just now starting to understand what level of refinement in said strategy is necessary to execute at the level they had before, pre a remote first world, where you can close a deal in Singapore, the US and France in the same day without ever having to get on a plane. These are exciting times. As the saying goes, taste the relish to be found in competition and having put forth the best within you. So 
That's that on episode three of Associated's miniseries. Join us in two weeks when episode four on collaboration comes out. In the meantime, feel free to go back and listen again to the first two episodes. This all builds on each other. Three down, four more to go. Lastly, feel free to leave us a message on Twitter at associated underscore pod or email us at associated.podcast at gmail. With any comments, concerns, or feedback, share this episode to your heart's content, hoping that this gets to as many interested ears as possible. Until next time.